0: So one of the great things about the Unitarian Universalist tradition is that you get to pick your own scriptures. It's part of that free and responsible search for truth and meaning that we talk about in our seven principles. And one of my personal scriptures is the Gospel of Calvin and Hobbes. For those who may not be familiar, I am not talking about John Calvin, who likes to burn Unitarians at the stake back in the day. Nor am I talking about Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher with whom we have considerably more in common. Rather, I'm talking about Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip, which ran for 10 years in 2,400 newspapers around the world. The strip depicted the adventures of a a precocious six-year-old boy named Calvin and his ever-present sidekick, a surprisingly eloquent stuffed tiger named Hobbes. On my coffee table at home is The Complete Calvin and Hobbes, a 1,400-page, four-book collection of every single strip. After the November election, I had put that on my Christmas list, and Santa came through. I asked for that, all those cartoons as a means of self-care. Indeed, after long hours of consuming way too much news, I'll read a few pages of comics before bed for a dose of levity. The strips are full of satire and social commentary and eye-rolling relatives. Three things that all are a big part of my life. And this morning I want to focus on one recurring element of the comic series. The Transmogrifier. To you and me and Calvin's parents, the transmogrifier may look like a cardboard rocks box with some writing on it, but we adults have such limited imaginations. For Calvin, the transmogrifier is a device that can transform any object, usually Calvin, into something else entirely, with just a turn of the dial and a quick zap. Calvin's original transmogrifier had four settings, eel, baboon, bug, and dinosaur. Pondering these options, the ever-thoughtful Hobbes had a question. What if you want to be something else? No problem, Calvin says. I left some room. Whatever you want to be, just write it in. While playing with the transmogrifier, Calvin soon turns himself into a tiger just like Hobbes. He complains of how warm he is now that he's covered with fur. And he notices he's much hungrier than he was when he was a human being and he becomes quite agitated with his long-suffering parents when they somehow fail to notice that he has become a tiger. The transmogrifier is the dream of many a kid, and its appeal tells us much about humanity, human reality, and humanity's relationship to change. That relationship is frequently a binary one. Either we really want change, or we really don't. Either rip the band-aid off, and make the change come quickly, or please don't change anything. With capabilities that are literally incredible, the transmogrifier speaks to long-held human hopes for quick changes, for magic wands and magic potions, for elixirs and fountains of youth, for shortcuts to being the next great thing. Readers may have fun watching Calvin turn into a tiger or a frog or back into Calvin, but you and I know the truth of the transmogrifier. At the end of the day, we know that Calvin's parents are reasonable and right. Calvin did not actually zap his way to tigerdom. Transformation rarely comes that easily. How change happens is on a lot of people's minds in this moment we are living in. We here in Langston Hughes' America have been seeing changes going on all around us at a dizzying and often terrifying speed. We have no map indicating at what point the road will finally smooth out or when it, mend, or it might bend back even slightly to the left. As much as we may dream of doing so, we can't put the whole country into the transmogrifier. We have been facing so much hard work. In some ways, that hard work has not been as much about change as about preservation, trying to rescue things like people's health insurance or the natural world we all live in. Sometimes living one's values means working to keep someone's band-aid in place while others try to rip it off. Struggling to keep the world from backsliding off a cliff can feel less joyful than moving the world onward and upward. But there is a silver lining to seeking justice while in rescue mode. In times of slow but general progress, people with relatively comfortable lives tend to sit on the sidelines and not worry much about the world's advancement. That's actually one way to define privilege. The privilege to do nothing differently because you and the people you you are closest to are doing fine. The upside of the ongoing crisis that we find ourselves in is that it has been motivating and activating a much larger percentage of the population. People who don't want their health situation or their financial situation to change, for the worse, are having to change their priorities in order to speak up and show up. More Americans are finding themselves in the same boat as it takes on stunning amounts of water. Week after week, The news is terrible. Yet it's helping to bring people together and firing them up in new ways. Now, much of this new interest is self-interest. But there are also increasing numbers of people who understand that the only liberation is collective liberation. Knowing that personal change is often required for societal transformation, a question I've been asking myself has been this. Have I changed myself enough to meet the moment. Maybe some of you have been asking this too with all that's going on. Have I changed my life enough in response to the attempts to destroy so much of what is good in our state and our country? When considering such questions, I find myself mindful of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. In the letter written in 1963, Dr. King sees middle-of-the-road white people as the greatest obstacle to justice. My own personal politics, worldview, and theological orientation are fairly far outside the mainstream, but my day-to-day life is comfortable, and inertia around justice is a constant temptation. MLK addresses this privilege, this tendency to favor a self-serving keeping of order over a wider, more inclusive justice. If I have all the right analyses and radical ideas, but I don't change anything about me or my life, I become the kind of obstacle that King was talking about. I become what he was wary of and weary of, and what many of his successors have rightfully run out of patience for. One of those successors is an African American activist named Hari Ziad, who got tired of being asked whether racial justice activists hated white people. Ziad did not hate white people, but he finally gave up and just started answering yes. (laughs) Here's part of Ziad's explanation to those white people who can't let go of systems that harm black people. I hate your fake concern for my well-being that reaches its limits as soon as it asks you to make a change or be uncomfortable. I hate the way you continue to go about your day while we die. I hate the way we die, and I am no longer afraid to say it. I hate the way you continue to go about your way while we die. Ziad is speaking to white Americans about black Americans, but he could have been speaking to all Americans about Jews during the Holocaust, or most Americans during the AIDS crisis. Or he could be speaking to most of the world right now about Syria. He could have been speaking to white Minnesotans angry that Black Lives Matter slowed down the pride parade last Sunday. There's a lot of pain and tragedy in the world and a lot of people going about their day. The truth is we all get some very mixed messages about this kind of thing in our culture. In the face of a crisis, we're often told that we're supposed to keep, calm, and carry on. If you do anything differently, it means that the terrorists or the bad guys are winning. Going about your day is cast as heroic. There's some truth to this. If I let this toxic presidency make me a more dour, less trusting, more fearful person, these are not changes that help the world. And for a lot of people, just getting through daily life is heroic. If you've got a house full of kids, or a new baby, or a partner or a parent who needs a lot of care, if you're working multiple jobs to survive in the so-called gig economy, if you're struggling with your own health, you may not have the capacity right now to help save the world. Or maybe you're a person whose activism is already at full capacity with no healthy, realistic way to add any more. Going about your day is saving the world. But among people who have some capacity or a bit of free time, enough money, I do worry that there's a lot of business as usual that is helping authoritarianism to tighten its hold. My Facebook feed still has a preponderance of disposable distractions. And when I look at my own calendar, I have just as many vacations planned this year as last. A year from now, or five years from now, well, I think that was the right thing to have done. I'm already realizing that in 2018, particularly toward November, I will need to focus my time in different ways. Of course, downtime is essential. Family time is essential. Art and leisure are essential, especially for those people who have long immersed themselves in the work. But to help our country, a country that's in uncharted territory, a country poised to let tens of thousands of people get sick and die each year, a country gravely endangered by incompetence and greed, how much are we truly compelled to change about our lives and about ourselves? What should we be doing and how can we keep up resistance over the long haul? These questions are being widely asked these days. More people seem to be realizing that to stay on the sidelines is to take a side. Every minister I know and many, many lay leaders are spending a lot of time trying to figure out what to do, both short-term and long-term, and to figure out the most effective balance of doing self-care and doing the work. And so I want to share with you some advice that I found valuable. The suggestions I wanna tell you about are mostly from Mira Kurzer, who is a lawyer, writer, photographer, and activist. She has a great blog post called, How to Stay Outraged Without Losing Your Mind. (laughs) The first point that Kurzer makes is this, don't get used to this administration. Take breaks from the news and from activism, she says, just like you take breaks at your job because it will all still be there when you get back. She points out that vacations actually increase productivity. It can be hard to think this way when there are cracks springing up all over our fragile democracy. Being frantic seems like the appropriate response. But Kerser says this, if you try to maintain this fever pitch of anguish and fear and outrage, Something far worse than little downtime is going to happen. Your brain, to protect you, will just turn down the volume on the outrage and adapt. People can get used to anything, she says, and if you don't take steps to prevent it, you will get used to this. Don't do that, she says. Get away and then come back. It's a long haul. Feminists and racial justice activists spend their whole lives doing this work. Resistance is not new to a large number of people, and nobody makes it without a break. Another piece of advice Curzer shares is to make activism joyful and even fun. Have a contest to see how many postcards or calls you can do. After a rally, go to happy hour. Sing and laugh along the way. I personally know, and I bet you know, that this can be a challenge on the left, where simple good cheer is sometimes misinterpreted as a lack of seriousness, and where inclusive, progressive people sometimes express their anger in counterproductive and vicious ways. Calling people into community is better than calling them out for their mistakes. Love and joy need to be at the center if we are going to make it. Kerzer says that a spirit of love and care also needs to extend to yourself. Take care of the basics, she says. Get enough sleep. Eat well. Exercise. Do not put off therapy or doctor appointments. Have some time for your friends and some time for yourself. But the country is falling apart, you might say. To which I respond, all the more reason for you and me not to fall apart so that we can work through these traumatic times and are healthy for the struggle. I know I've been more rigorous in my own self-care. I've kept up my swimming regimen. I've added a tiny bit of weightlifting to channel some of the anger. And since November, I've been playing my fiddle basically every single day, no matter what. I don't play that fiddle for others to hear. I play it to clear my mind and keep a tune in my heart. One final recommendation from Curzer, she encourages individuals to focus their energy on one or two issues, because very few people have time to do it all. She's clear that she does not mean that collectively we all only pick one or two issues and cast everything else aside. Rather, she writes, the only way this works is if lots of people focus on lots of different issues, with the result that all the important stuff gets covered. My partner and I, and perhaps a few of you, saw this during the UU General Assembly in New Orleans just the week before last. We felt less a sense of competition for attention around individual issues than in the past, and more of an understanding that environmental justice is tied to racial justice, is tied to economic justice, is tied to gender justice, and so on across the entire spectrum of resistance and liberation. I wanna close with a bit of writing that speaks to the idea that we each have a role to play. These words appeared a few months back on countless websites and Facebook pages, and no one seems to know who wrote them. I saw a lot of guesses, but nothing definitive, but I'm gonna share them anyway. Here it is. I have been pondering a nearly forgotten lesson I learned in high school music. Sometimes in band or choir, music requires players or singers to hold a note longer than they can actually hold a note. In those cases, we were taught to mindfully stagger when we took a breath so that the sound appeared uninterrupted. Everyone got to breathe and the music stayed strong and vibrant. Uh, Their quote continues. I read an article that suggested the administration's litany of bad executive orders as a way of giving us protest fatigue. We will literally lose our will to continue to fight in the face of the onslaught of negative action. So let's remember music. Take a breath, the rest of the chorus will sing. The rest of the band will play. Rejoin so others can breathe. Together we can sustain a very long, beautiful song for a very, very long time. You don't have to do it all, but you must add your voice to the song. So as all of us in this room head back into the fray that our country has become, into this holiday week that will claim to celebrate freedom even as collective liberation remains far off, may each of us figure out how to change and how to grow to live out our highest ideals May more of us accept the hard work of doing so. May we believe that we are the right people for this moment and may we believe, may we become the people we want to be. May we make it so and amen.